Welcome to StoryWise. This is the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, inspire, and motivate you to learn how you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Script Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc. Today I am thrilled to have as my guest one of my favorite television writers, Krista Vernoff. Krista is currently the executive producer showrunner on Grey's Anatomy. She is also a first-time author of a new book coming out entitled The Game on Diet. Kick your friend's butt while shrinking your own. Thank you. Krista also wrote on Wonderfalls, Charmed, and did a crossover episode of Private Practice, an episode of Law & Order, as well as her first staffing experience on Time of Your Life. Thank you for joining me, Krista. Thank you for having me, Jen. I was very excited about the idea of reading your book, number one, which I did and I loved, and, and we'll get into that, as well as the fact that you wrote one of my favorite episodes of the year of Grey's Anatomy this year. Thank you. So I am just thrilled. I mentioned Krista on my newsletter, pointed out her episode that she wrote this year that that was just phenomenal on every level. Um, starting with first, I would like to talk about the idea of your first experiences. Um, as a writer, when did you first know that you wanted to write? I um, I was an acting major in college. I don't know if you remember. So um, I went to Boston University College of Fine Arts, and I went to the Conservatory Actors Training Program there. So it was a really intensive, difficult, um, difficult to graduate from program because they had a lot of talent-based cuts. So we started with 60 students, and we graduated 16 in my class. And I decided my senior year in that program that I wanted to be a writer after I took a playwriting class with a wonderful professor named John Lipsky. And um, shortly after I announced to everybody, after writing one play that is, (laughs) in retrospect, really bad, um, but that I I announced that I thought I wanted to be a writer, everybody sort of patted me on the back and was like, oh, because you're so scared to, like, graduate and go out into the world and try to be an actor. And I had worked so hard to get into this program and then to graduate from this program, and it made a lot of sense to me that people thought I just wanted to be a writer because I was scared. So I um, believed them, and I moved to New York to try to be an actor. Right. But while I was there, I took a screenwriting class at the New School. And uh, in like the adult extension program or something. And I loved it. And that professor, whose name I don't remember, um, told me that she thought I should be a TV writer because I wrote so much dialogue. I, th- I thought in dialogue. I didn't think visually I, I in terms of sort of like, you know, I just saw Up last night. Right. And I thought my husband turned to me and he said, how many lines of dialogue you think were in that whole movie? Like the whole thing is laid out just so you know that there are 20 minute sequences without any dialogue. And, and you know that on the page you have to think so visually and it's not how I think. So I she was trying to teach visual thinking and I was writing plays basically. And uh, because I grew up in the theater. Right. So TV writing is a lot like playwriting. And uh, I thought, oh, I should be a TV writer. Huh, I, I guess I should watch TV because I hadn't been watching TV for years. I didn't have a working TV. I was, you know, broke. And plus I waited tables at night and uh, I hadn't seen, I literally hadn't seen anything but like Letterman in, in six years. So um, I started watching TV and I bought a couple books on how to be a TV writer. And uh, then I moved to Portland 
Oregon to be an actor because um, I had friends who were making a living acting there. Interesting. And I had a boyfriend who wanted to move there is the true story. <laughs> there we go. And uh, he wanted to go to massage school there. And I had some friends who were making a living acting because it was a smaller pond. And uh, I moved there and I moved in with my best friend, Peter Page, who – um, was one of my friends who was making a living acting in Portland at the time, and then he went on to do Queer as Folk and all the stuff that he's gone on to do. But uh, I moved in with him, with my boyfriend. We all lived in, like, a tiny one-bedroom, and he was obsessed with sitcoms, which I hadn't watched in years, and he was really into Friends and Mad About You. And I started watching those, and I thought, I really think I could write. I really think I could write one of those. And so I sat down and I tried to write a Spec Friends. I did write a Spec Friends. Good for you. And I, then I wrote a spec mad about you. During the years I was living in Portland, I eventually was making my living acting in regional theater in Portland. I was writing during the day. I was writing screenplays. I wrote a screenplay with feature uh, feature with um, Peter, cool. and then I was writing specs. And I spent years in Portland acting and writing. And um, after I had made my living for one year acting, like I I had I had not waited tables in like eleven months or something, I felt that I had proven to my family and my friends who thought I was quitting because I was scared that I actually could make a living acting and that I wasn't quitting because I was scared and that I really wanted to be a writer. Like I knew I wanted to be a writer. And so I packed up all my spec scripts and I packed up my car with everything that would fit in it and my new boyfriend who, <laughs> who wanted to move to L.A. And, um, and we drove here and I put my headshots in storage and I never told anybody that I was trained as an actor. When people asked me what I was doing, I said I'm an aspiring writer. Like I just knew I was done acting. That I love I love that part of your journey though. I mean that that was your answer. Yeah. And and I think Oregon, what a great training ground to oh, be it was there wonderful. and write and act. I'm sure that your acting informs your writing. What well, you my his, my background in in theater surely informs my writing. I grew up in dialogue. You know, and again, I became a TV writer and plays and TV and screen uh, teleplays for television. Do you call a screenplay a teleplay? No, it's a tele teleplays. Wow, um, movie of the <laughs> week. You mean? No, I mean television writing. Grey's Anatomy. Right. Writing an episode of Grey's Anatomy is a lot more like writing a play for the stage right. than it is like writing a movie, frankly. And so, definitely that experience because of the dialogue intense. Because it's dialogue yeah. intense, yeah. and and you have set. Stages. I, I just wrote a movie for the first time in a decade. I actually got uh, for the first time ever. I got paid to write a movie, and for the first time in ten years. Thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you. I'm still hopeful that it might uh, see the light of day. It's called Arranged, and I wrote it um, for Jennifer Garner's company. Great. And it's um, it was fascinating because they kept saying like. Can you make it big? Like, could you take that scene that you put in their apartment and put it at at Fenway? Like, could you make it bigger and more expensive? And I've been in TV for 10 years where, like the theater, you've got your stages. And maybe one or two scenes an episode you could go outside. But oftentimes, even when you say, like, let's go outside for that, they go, could we build that restaurant on the lot? Like, you are – you're constantly you're, – you're, you're locked to your stages. And that's much like the theater. You're locked to your stages. You know, you're locked to the sets that are built. So um, definitely my my background and training as an actor informed my writing in that oh, way. Oh, I think that's fantastic. Now, going to your first staffing experience, which I could say I, w- I was involved at the time when that happened, and I was very excited. Charmed was your first staffing experience. You know or what? what or it it you wasn't. Have... You left out one credit, oh. which was time of your life was my staff writer oh, job. that's right. Yeah. I, oh, I it, forgot. Yeah. That was the spinoff of Party of Five yes. and Jennifer Love Hewitt. What was show. that like? 
uh, that Jennifer Garner was in, actually. Um, Great. That, so that first staffing season, you know what? It's People hate me when I tell this story because it's not the way things really work anymore. And I got really, really right place, right time, really lucky, really blessed. It, it just sort of worked out for me. So I... Uh, got my first agent through, you know, actually, I met her at a Women in Film networking breakfast. So I was doing a little bit of like going out and trying to meet people. And um, and I and she read my sitcom specs and she was the third person to read them and say, you know, these are good. And your voice, your ear for character is really good. But I don't think they're quite as funny, as laugh out loud funny, as like hard joke funny as you need to be to be a sitcom writer. I think maybe you're an hour long writer. She was the third person to say that. So if you get a note from one person, it's one thing. But when you get it three times, it's devastating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably but it means true. Something. Yeah. But, and to me, it, it, I had worked so hard. I had spent three or four months writing that friend spec. And uh, as long writing them out, it was just like, are you kidding me? I'm starting over. But she said, look, I really like your writing. And I'm happy to read your hour-long specs when you have them. But you need to write hour-long specs. And... Um, I was devastated and for several months I didn't write a word. And then as it turns out, as many things in life, that turned out to be the bit, the best luck and the best advice of my life. Because, you know, a sitcom writer's life is kind of hell. Yeah. That's like those are crazy long work days. They get home at 2 and 3 in the morning. Like I don't have I don't have the makeup for that. I go, you know, we work like 9 to 6. Right. <laughs> you know? It's a different life to write hour-long television. It's a different culture. Right. And um, – I wrote, so what happened is I started finally I started watching TV and I had and I had said well I can't write an hour long because the only hour long shows I watch are ER and Law and Order and I am not writing one of those like that's impossible <laughs> and she said well there's this new show Felicity and why don't you watch it because it seems right up your alley I watched Felicity and I watched the first six episodes and then I sat down to write a Felicity and I wrote it in four days. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's how I knew that it took me four months to write Mad About You and four days to write Felicity. Like, I just understand that. I un Here's the thing about sitcom versus hour long. Sitcom, you have to be willing to veer away from the truth of the story for a joke. If somebody pitches the world's funniest joke, even if that character would never say it, you're going to you're, you have to write it anyway, because that is the, at least in the old school sitcoms that it's like three jokes a page and you better laugh out loud at them. And for me, that it felt untrue. I, I write from character and I write from truth. And I wasn't willing to veer off point or off story or off the truth to, to make a funnier joke. And so shows like Felicity or shows like Grey's Anatomy, the humor comes out of the character. It comes out of the truth. And um, that was infinitely easier for me. So that would be like advice to young writers like um, – you know what? It isn't always true, though. Sometimes what's harder is is better. I don't know. For me, the fact that I that it was that it felt like it was just pouring out of me was information for me. And then, so I wrote that Felicity, and then um, that agent said, "Why don't you watch the practice?" And I so I went to the broadcast museum and I watched twelve episodes of the practice in three days, and then I went and I wrote an episode of the practice in eight days. Like it was it was like, oh my god, this is so my genre. And then I got. Ironically, my first job was a freelance episode of Law and Order, which I had said so specifically I could never write that show. It's all procedure. It's not See, character. That's, it's, that's interesting. It's all what you law. Were watching, I could never do this. And yeah, you did, and I did. And then, um, and and so off the that was so right place, right time, right agent, right relationship, everything. And uh, 
and he and Renee Balsay was the showrunner, and he read my law, my practice spec, and um, and he called me in for a meeting, and I was so dumb, like I was so uh, dumb, like I, I, I by dumb I mean um, not unintelligent, but uneducated as to how this all worked. I was sort of this hippie kid moving here from Portland, like let's all put on a play kind of thing, and it was like come in and meet the showrunner of Law and & Order and pitch something. And I wore my little flowery dress and like, I, I no, I didn't. I, dr- I dressed up like I was auditioning for for Law & Order. So I wore a, like a business suit. <laughs> like I was, it was so, the whole but thing. But that's how you learn. Yeah, you that's how you know. learn. And I remember my agents were like, I went in after, they were like, you didn't wear that, did you? Because they were like, the talent is supposed to look like the talent, not like one of the suits. And I just, it was hilarious. Um so anyway, I, I, Renee was charmed by my idiocy, I think, and um, and I had a good idea. Uh, and you made an impression. I made and an impression. And you had a good idea. I had a good idea really poorly pitched, but it was a good idea. And when you're they, – they had just done 200 episodes of Law & Order. So if when you say an idea – I had that job in one sentence. And I could have talked myself out of it because I so was unprepared in every other way. But I said, have you ever done an episode about Alzheimer's rage, like somebody kills somebody in an Alzheimer's rage? Because I had done some reading about that. And he, that was it. I had that job. Cause he, because you've done 200 episodes, and when somebody says an idea that you actually haven't done, there you go. Especially on an issue-oriented yeah, show. Yeah, that's why but, I say there was a certain amount of, of luck involved in all of that. It was just like I can't tell anybody to follow the advice of what I did because I didn't know anything. And then I um, – and then uh, off the heat of getting that assignment, I got the meeting over at Kaiser Lippmann, who were doing Time of Your Life. And they hired me as they a staff writer. They read your Felicity, though. They read my Felicity. Yes. They read my Felicity. And, yeah. And then they hired me as a staff writer. And they also hired me because um, I had, like like Jennifer uh, Love Hewitt's character in that show, I had moved to New York to try to be, to try to, I think she was trying to be a singer. <laughs> like, I had moved to New York in my early 20s, and, and I was able to and say, you like. you can relate with the character. Mm-hmm. That, uh, yeah, that is key. I mean, did you remember, I think um, what I tell writers all the time, as far as when you're going into a meeting, really recognize what you have in your past that lends to the concept. Yeah. And make sure that you bring it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I all but begged for that job in that room. I was just like, I love your show and I can do your show and here's what I remember. And I pitched. I wasn't intentionally pitching. I didn't know what pitching meant. I didn't know anything uh, about anything but I was like oh this happened to me and 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 wouldn't be fun to put it on TV and then they hired me and I remember I showed up the first day and I was like okay I knew there was a writer's room and I was like all right we can go to the writer's room because actually I ended up going on staff there before I ended up before I wrote the law and order like it was like I got the assignment but it was later in the season so I show up and it's my first thing and I walk in and the development executive greets me and she's like, let me show you to your office. And I said, you mean the writer's room? And she said, no, your office. And I said, because I had no editing mechanism and still don't, I get an office? <laughs> like by myself? Like my own office? And she laughed and showed me my little office and I still have a picture. I made somebody take a picture of me behind my desk. And uh, and and that show went 18 episodes, which was The Order. And then, and then uh, I – and then it was – I think I think it, I, they never even aired all eighteen. So we knew when we were we knew I think when that job ended that it was probably not going to get a second season. And then I came and met you. Yes, then yeah. you came and met me, and I read your practice and I read your Felicity, and I love both. I remember both. I can't believe you remember. Come on, yeah. you read hundreds. No, coming into today, I 
totally knew the practice. I was like, I so, you know, it is a wild thing because when you read, I mean, I probably read, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500 writers. The ones that stand out to you, you remember the person, you remember the name of the script that they wrote, you you sometimes remember the storyline, and you get a positive feeling when you look. It, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, I think as an executive, one thing you mentioned that I think is important to tap on is you mentioned the idea of you studied TV, yeah. which I have to say that I did as well. I had a journal by my television set, so I would rate writers and directors from one to five. For like 15 years, I did that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was like I got to see who was writing a lot for what show, right. how, you know, how consistent they were when they jumped to other shows, so it was... Watching TV is definitely the key to it. Oh, definitely. And and liking TV. Can I just say, like, I, when I, I hadn't been watching because I was waiting tables at night. and I, But when I made, and you didn't, we didn't have TiVos back then. Right. <laughs> and so. Can you imagine life before no, TiVos? I, no. I was, my friend was reminding me the other day, my friend Mickey was talking about how when she was a little girl and she wanted to record something, she would hold up a tape recorder to the TV so she could record the audio. Like. So yeah, uh, but I when I started watching, I loved watching TV, and I fell in love with the shows that I was watching, and I loved Friends. I didn't come at it from an attitude of like I could do that. It was like oh, I could do that. I love this show. I want to try, and that is for me. If you don't like TV, I've known writers who don't like TV and try to write TV because oh, there's money in it. Like, really, I'm a playwright, but I write TV because there's money. I try to write TV because there's money. I'm gonna try, and it's like, oh, fuck off. Yes. You know, go, go write something sells. else. Write a movie. Yes. Like, really, write something that you like because I can tell you that if you are patronizing, like, if you don't like. Grey's Anatomy and and you sit down to write a spec of Grey's Anatomy, you're going to be talking down to the show and anybody who reads it is going to see that. Um, I would like to talk with you about the writer's room and your experience in the writer's room. Um, starting with, let's say, Grey's Anatomy right now, what what is the environment in the writer's room like in comparison to shows that you've worked on before? I love. We have an amazing writers' room at Grace Anatomy. We have an, an amazing staff. They're incredible and they're fun. And most of them used to be actors, so they they they're funny and comfortable and easy to be around all day, every day. And I, I love I love the writers' room. There's there's no pecking order. There's um, we have writers sort of at every level, and we we just it's it really is like every show <laughs> kind of says this, but it's actually true at Grey's Anatomy that it's a really familial environment. Like it's family. We we bring in everything. We bring in you know the fight we had with our husband this morning and the worries we have about our child's school and the whatever. And we we probably, in, in truth, spend... Oh, God. We probably spend 40 minutes of every hour talking things that seem unrelated to the work that we, we have on the on the board. We, we And then we work hard. And then we, like, it's like we, we, we chat, play for 20 minutes, and then we work for 5 or 10 minutes. And that somebody goes, oh, my God, that reminds me. And then we chat and play for 20 minutes, and then we work for 10 or 15 minutes. But when we work for those 10 or 15 minutes, we can put an act on the board because we have been filling up our brains and our hearts with so much rich material from our lives, and it keeps the creative juices flowing. So I've learned, for the most part, to stop panicking that we've been screwing around all day and to know that that's our process. Our process is to enjoy each other. It's like the most fun dinner party you've ever been to. And then we and then we go, okay, wait, all right, 
act three, <laughs> you know? And then we talk for 10 or 15 minutes, and then and then we go off point again. And See, that's... but in that shows, I have to say, on the page, I mean, what I would say my favorite, favorite, first of all, I think I cry in every single episode of Grey's. Well, Grey's, we cry. It... Somebody in our writer's room cries every day at Grey's, too. Grey's so... is like a must-see <laughs> for me for, like, emotional reasons. Yeah. Because you see your life, you tap into themes that hit all of us. Yeah. And we can all connect and relate with, and, and you tapped on something that's so important that I tell writers, being able to access their story is the key to everything. So as you say, you all put all the personal we stuff We all out bring there. our whole selves. We bring all of our truth into that writer's room. All, uh, you know, our parents die and we bring our grief into the writer's room and our kids have victories and we bring it into the writer's room and, and you know, people go on bad dates and they bring it into the writer's room in great detail and it's it's wonderful and I think you, you every, we go, oh my God, that's that has to happen to George. Like, that has to happen to Alex. Like, we, we think that we're just messing around and then we borrow a detail and it ends up on the show and that has happens all the time and it's it's such a community environment and we also have no there's no competition at Grey's Anatomy and that is it's all the competition goes to the characters on the screen and that is something that's quite different from other staffs I've worked on and I think that that um I don't know that comes from the fact that we like each other and we help each other and we support each other and everybody you know feels safe in their job and you know, it's it's become a really super it hasn't always been but it's it's become we didn't hire we didn't change any staff this year that tells you something That's we hired fantastic. no one we let no one go we kept our room okay in place. job security in this town yeah. is like out the window right now yeah. so that is fantastic it tells you it tells you cuz you've been yes. on the staffing side of things exactly how much we love the the environment right now we thought about maybe bringing on one more writer and a budget, ABC was basically like, no. And B, uh, we were really concerned with anytime you bring in a new element, you you potentially mess new with energy. What, what's working. Yeah. Well, it's new energy, and hopefully mm-hmm. it's good new energy. But if it's not, it can screw up everything. Upsets the so balance. we're yeah. having a great time right now at Grace. And now, um, keeping with the writer's room, like when you think about where you were on Charmed and Time of Your Life and I'm sure um, as a new writer and being a little fearful of the process and pitching ideas out in the room, now you're an upper-level female writer on a top-rated show. You're definitely one of the top writers in the industry. How does it feel like when you look back to when you started and think about Let me just that? tell you that every writer is highly insecure. And the fact that you just said to me, one of the top writers in the industry, that freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> That's honest. Like, That's honest that crap. that freaks I, you that out. That is true. That is incredibly awesome and nice. That's so bizarre. You never think of yourself that way. You're always like the like the kid who gets picked last on the teams in high school. Like, it's it's weird. Um, but it's wonderful, and yeah. it's true. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm blushing. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, what was the question? Was there a question? <laughs> well, no, when you're looking back, when you think about, say, the more, and you, uh, you just said all writers are insecure, yeah. which I think is very real. And because, why? Because your scripts are your babies, and your babies are being up for criticism, and that's a difficult process. When you think back to when you were a writer on Time of Your Life and Charmed, and like think about mistakes you made along the way in the writer's room that took you from that beginning point to the confident, safe place that you're in with your room right now, what, what was that journey like? Okay, so for me, again, 
uh, the mistakes that I made were not in being too quiet. Like I was, I didn't understand. I did not know there was a pecking order in writers' rooms. I did not know that there were eight levels of writer. I didn't know. So I went in and I was coming from this theater thing of like, hey, let's all put on a play in the backyard, raise the barn, like, you know, and everybody's an equal. And so I go into time of your life and I have like diarrhea mouth. Like I, and I, frankly, I did the same thing on the first day of Grey's Anatomy, but I had a title you know, like, I didn't understand that there was a pecking order. And so if there was, a, I mean, that was the mistake. Like, I found out later that, like, one of the senior writers on that show, like, that I made him crazy. Like, I didn't know, though. <laughs> but that's a very real thing, too. It's, like, yeah. understanding the temperament of the room. Right. And Well, and that was the difference, is that at time of your life, there was a pecking order. And... I was failing to honor it. So I was struggling and feeling like what's I couldn't quite feel comfortable in my skin every day. Mm-hmm. At Charmed, Brad said on the first day, there is no pecking order in this room. I do not want a pecking order. I, I want, like even the staff writers are making really super good money and I want my money's worth. So open your mouth. And to me, that was like, for some people, that would be scary because they're new and they're scared and they're baby writers and they don't know what they're doing. And to me, because I am an extrovert and an improviser and I get excited and I open my mouth and I was raised in a family who, we, who interrupt each other, you know. I, I, I don't know how to be sort of typically polite and small talk is like incredibly foreign to me. So I, I am the person who just starts talking about like, so when I had my baby and I had to get stitches in my vajayjay like the first day, you know what I mean? It's, it's so... I that was great because when Brad said that that set me I felt free and by Brad she means Brad Brad Kern, Kern. who is the showrunner on Charmed yeah he just set a tone from the beginning where I was free to soar and and that is and and then I and that's you know Brad was really a mentor to me I stayed there for three years and I I started I was a story editor when I started and I think I left at co-producer. And story editor, executive story editor, co-producer. I think I left it producer. He gave me a promotion halfway through. Brad <laughs> loved season. your writing. Yeah, right. I do uh, know this. Um, that was great. And that was it. Was, it's wonderful when it's a when it's a match. And that's mm-hmm. why back to sort of you have to like what you're writing. Like I liked Charmed. I I thought it was a girl power show, and it let me be funny, and I like magic, and it let me be a little kick-ass, and and I had a really good time there. And when I stopped having a good time, and I stopped loving the show, is when I left. And that was. Because, um, which I think is an important thing to talk about, there were a lot of pressures suddenly from the network. It it stopped being a girl power show and it started being a, how do we get the girls naked this week? And Brad and the staff, we all pushed against it as hard as we could, but it was, it was systemic. It had, had, they wanted the male demographic and now uh, I had gone to a show that I loved and that I thought was girl power. And now I was literally sitting in the writer's room trying to figure out like, breaking like storylines where the girls were morphing and I pitched a storyline where the girls morphed into demon strippers or something demon strippers it was awful I was like I came in pitching fairies and I left pitching demon strippers and to me that was how I knew it was time to go that but that brings up a very good point I mean when you move beyond your comfort zone or beyond your level of joy certainly in this day and age it's it's a harder call because with the economy being what it is to have that freedom of choice. But I think that was great then that you knew, all right, I did my time here. I learned what I needed to learn. Now I'm ready to move. And I will tell you, I don't know if you remember, but and I think this is super important for every aspiring writer and writer to, to know, especially in this economy. 
when I left that job, that company offered to double my salary if I would stay for one more year. And I tell you that because I was a poor kid. I grew up on welfare, right? So it was an insane amount of money to me. And I said no. I do remember that. It, and I, I said no and went out that. into the marketplace without a job lined up. And that is that is the kind of leap of faith that I think is required to be the kind of artist that I hope everybody listening wants to be. Is you cannot take a job that that destroys your soul for a paycheck. It, you'll never be the writer you want to be. And on that note, I think we will go to break. That's excellent. Thank you so much. You're listening to Storywise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. We are back with Krista Vernoff from Grey's Anatomy, and next I would love to cover writing and your feelings on writing um my first question would be what are your favorite and least favorite parts of the writing process (laughs) wow what are my favorite and least favorite parts of the writing process i love and hate the entire writing process i i i love i love when i'm in when it's flowing and for me when it's flowing and this is not true for every writer and it's so so important to honor what's true for you and what your rhythms are and to not compare yourself to other writers that is so important i know amazing writers who write really amazing work really slowly please know that for me because i tend my you i talk fast even like when i'm in a when i'm in the zone i write fast and when it's coming fast and it's coming true I'm either laughing out loud at my like I'm cracking myself up or I'm crying while I write and that process I love and also that crying while you write is really painful and I like I remember working on some you know when we work on like dying child scenes on Grey's Anatomy I I just I was sobbing into my computer sobbing like I was afraid I was going to break the computer because the liquid was and I stormed to the writer's room and I told Shonda I quit I do that a couple times a year (laughs) It's just too painful for me to be on a medical show is super hard. I become like a hypochondriac and I worry about, you know, the health of everybody I love. And so that part is hard. Um, You know, and of course, it's hard when you're not in the flow, when you're when you're writing and it doesn't feel true. And it's like, ugh. and for me, I just keep writing until it does feel true. That's my process. If I stop and go away, forget it. It's never going to get real. And other people. Again, I know people who have to stop, go to the movies, stop, go out to dinner. I just keep writing. You keep writing. And yeah. now, are you hypercritical of your own writing? Do you watch your episodes? Do I you... watch my own episodes, and I, my answer to that is no. I because And the only reason I can answer that um, is because I was, as an actor, hyper. I know what hypercritical feels like. I was hypercritical of my own work, like where you cannot watch, you can't look. And um, no, I'm not that way about my writing. I'm a little neurotic, and mostly I get hypercritical of like what other people have done to my writing. <laughs> you know? That's honest. 
honestly, the like, if, part if, of the staffing experience. Yeah, if something gets cut in the editing room and I, I didn't know know it was going to be cut, I didn't. It, I, I get mad, and you know, or if the actors were in a bad mood that day and didn't want to play what I clearly intended, I get mad. You know, but not you know me mad is. Whatever. But I that, don't... I mean, that taps into the ego, too. I think the ego in writing is a very big part of, I think, knowing how to put your ego at the door and learning that is a constant process. I would say from women in the industry, I can certainly say, I mean, because you're in an in- industry where the ego is a very big part of the room, mm-hmm. you really have to work on res- how do I respond from my spirit versus how do I respond from my ego. Well, and ego, you know, the thing is, if you want to be a TV writer, and I'm, if you want to be a TV writer, you better have a collaborative spirit. That's what I have to say. If you don't have a collaborative spirit, and I don't say that with any judgment. Some people are really collaborative by nature and love input and love the process of I pitch one thing and then you build on, on it and then you build on it and then you say something entirely different and we all think that's better and then we build on that. That's the process in the writer's room. And if you if you don't, if that is not your thing, if you really super like to sit alone and your idea is the best idea that you for you and you want to work on it, write books, write plays. You know, you could even write screenplays, but you're going to be tortured when pe- when everybody gets their hands on it. But but at least in the writing process, you won't be tortured. Like if you're a TV writer and you don't have a collaborative spirit, you will be tortured every step of the way. So that there's not a lot of room for ego and. Even for me, even at the level that I'm at, I write a script and then I give it to Shonda and she gives me her thoughts and she's the creator and she outranks me. And if she has ideas that I don't love, I can fight her and fight her. And then there comes a point where I know I can't fight her anymore and I just got to go do it, (laughs) you know. And then I have to find a way to fall in love with it. And oftentimes I do and it really makes it better. And if it doesn't, to me, make it better, it's better to her and it's her show. And that's part of the process. And then the actors get it. The director gets it. The editor. Editors get it. The music people get it. The, I mean, a scene can be elevated by the actors or wrecked by the actors. It can be elevated by the music or destroyed by the music, elevated by editing or completely all the emotion gone from the editing. So it's it, it takes a lot to make. That's why I'm not hypercritical of a good episode. If an episode reaches the mark where I go, that was good, I'm not pulling it apart because yeah. I know what it takes to get to good. It, it is a huge confluence of magic uh, to get to good TV because so many – there are so many elements. So it's super collaborative and, and that's my one biggest piece of advice is figure out like what you actually should be writing now, based on what's true for you. In writing, you mentioned that your book – uh, writing a book is a much more isolated experience. What was your experience with writing your first book? Well, it, that was amazing because I had w- w- wonderful editors in New York, and I would send them chapters, and they would go, we love this. Write another one. I mean, Amy, and Amy actually, I, they definitely would go, oh, could you add, we had this idea for sidebar about this, or, or, or could you elaborate on this a little bit more? But And I'd go, sure, and I'd sit down to write it, and that was it. That was the process. You know, I had a partner on the book and I would send the chapters to him and he would go, I love it. Or, oh, you left this piece of information out. So it was collaborative in that or, you know, he would write and he he writes as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As as Ferguson. He's wonderful. And he's a fitness expert, but he's not as much of a writer. So he would write pieces and send them to me and I I would work on them or he I would write chapters and send them to me and he, he would give me notes. So it was collaborative in that way. But. 
it's like you send it all to New York. And so, you know, as has had an opinion and our research assistant Duffy had uh, had, you know, note would give me notes and the editors would give me notes. And then I put it all in and then I send it to New York. And now it's a freaking book. It's a book. Like, that's it. It's everything I wrote. And it's on the page. And it's going to be on bookshelves in two weeks. And it's like, oh, my God, that's amazing and terrifying. Well, it's fantastic. I have to say, from someone who's read a ton of diet books, who's read a ton of books, period, I think the beauty of your book is the personal aspect put into a diet approach that I don't know has been done in a book before as far as the game approach and the value of doing something in a group. I, I think that was brilliant. Thank you. And I I think it was brilliant, too. And that was what Az brought. That was all Az. That was his idea. He was, I was like, oh, I'm basically obese. Like, I gained 50 pounds with my pregnancy, and I don't know how to lose it. And he made, he came and he tried to teach me, and I just, whatever. Like, I'd rather play with my baby. And then he made it into a game, and that was fun to me. Like, in case you haven't noticed, like, if it isn't fun, I don't want to do it. Like, if I'm not really enjoying a thing, I don't want to do it. And he found a way to make dieting a thing I enjoyed. And that's why I was willing to attach my name to a diet book, because I worry as a woman particularly about the impact of the word diet. And I worry about the pressures on being in Hollywood. I really worry about the pressures to be thin and the craziness that people have. And I was really worried about putting a, quote, diet book on the market. But The Game on Diet is not a diet book. It's a game that you play with your friends to get healthier. And it takes on every aspect of your life. And that's a thing that hasn't been done before. We ask you have to sleep a certain amount every night, drink a certain amount of water, and take on take Get on rid of habits. bad habits. Get rid of I bad know. habits. Get, it's, it's a whole life game. No, I've done you it know? for a few days. And I have to say, the recipes are amazing. It, it is an excellent book. Thank you. Say the name again. It's called The Game on Diet. And the subtitle is Kick Your Friend's Butt While Shrinking Your Own. And I will say that I had gotten big as a writer in Hollywood, one of the, you know, problems <laughs> of the complacency of the trade. And I've lost, you know, I don't know, I was like a size 18, Jen, when I started. And uh, now I'm a 10. So When I saw the pictures of before and after, and that alone, that to me was like the epitome of what a writer needs to know. You go to the darkest place of fear and you recognize that you come out of it. And in those pictures to me were were I I admire you so She's talking about the, the fear of putting your fat pictures in a book for all your ex-boyfriends <laughs> in the world to see. It's and terrifying. You that in but the you book, know what? which was so great. I did. And you... and that's the thing other thing I really would like people to know is that I did write this book as a memoir. It's a comic memoir. So even if you don't want to go on a diet and you don't want to play our game, I think you'll enjoy this book if you like Grey's Anatomy because it's because it's my voice and it, it is your voice. Yeah, it, it is was a lot of voice. fun to write. And I have to admit, like I was excited about promoting it because my brand is developing from within, and the idea that the stronger we are inside, the stronger you are on the page. So it's doing the work. It is, and 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 to me, yeah, I mean, it's it's you can really undo yourself in this town. You can really undo yourself in. A a thousand different ways and and instead for me this this diet book this game is not about trying to reach some skinny ideal I'm happily a size 10 I have no interest in being a size 6 or a size 2 it's about getting healthy and feeling well and and you know everything in my life is better for it now I would love to talk about family I know that you are a new mom how was this life experience for you when you you have a job that is like 24 um, <clears> 7? <throat> I 
remember vividly when I was about seven months pregnant, it finally hitting me that I was pregnant. And I sat in my office sobbing, sobbing to Joan Rader and Alan Heinberg. And then Shonda came in and I was sobbing because I was like, I was literally like a Diane Keaton scene out of some movie. How am I going to do my career? Like I have worked so hard for this career and I'm about to have a person. Like I have to put a push a person out of my body like and then take care of that person. And how am I going to have the career that I've worked so hard for? It was straight out of like the Heidi Chronicles. And then I and then I had the baby and then I took eleven week maternity leave. And then um I was I for the last two weeks before I went back to work, I was sobbing every day. I wanna go back to work. I wanna stay with my baby. How am I gonna be the mom I wanna be and have to go back to work? Like everything changed. Everything changed. And um, and it has continued that way. Not so much. I, I like going to work, but I really, really changed the way I do my work. So I used to go to work, you know, any hour of the morning, like you know, whatever hour I needed to, because I was writing an insane, I was doing huge, huge, huge amounts of writing on Grey's Anatomy the first few seasons. Now we have a phenomenal staff and they write most of their own episodes. Most of, most, like there's very little rewriting to be done anymore. And so I go to work at, you know, between nine and 10 and I leave between six and, I leave between six and 6.30 every day. And my daughter doesn't go to sleep until 9.30. She, she, that's her biorhythm. I, I didn't put her on that, but I love it because I go home and I spend three hours with her and then she goes to sleep and if there's more work to be done I do it then so that's the the beauty of the position that I'm in is that I can say okay I'm going home play with Coco and then sit with my laptop while, while she sleeps in the bed next to me and do the writing that still needs to be done if there's writing that still needs to be done that is that's outstanding and, and I used to stay at the office until 10 or 11 at night like we would yeah because you could because I could I mean, that's yeah that's the difference yeah stop maybe go have dinner with my husband come back to work like it was a different culture and then you have a kid and you go oh no you know and the thing that fell away from me the hard thing for me was the socializing because also Coco comes to the office she used to come every day and now she comes several days some some days now she'll be at the park and you know her nanny will be like let's go see mama and she's like no I'm swinging (laughs) so she doesn't come every day but she comes several days a week and she comes at lunchtime so I used to socialize with the writers at lunchtime and and uh or or you know after work everybody would sit around and order a late dinner or whatever and socialize and and but you know what we socialize in the writer's room all day like that's what I had to realize is like I'm missing a few stories here and there I'm running but my I'm so blessed that Shonda has created a work environment that's really mom friendly like really woman friendly and family friendly and Coco comes and we play there's a play I have a little playroom outside my office and I have a box of toys inside my office and we have green rolling lawns at the studio and Shonda has this pink golf cart that Coco loves to climb on and pretend she's driving and she and she comes into the writer's room and she draws on the writer's board so it's not a corporate environment and that's where I'm I don't know how people I, I do I have a really dear friend who's an executive at ABC and she's got two kids and that's hard you can't have your kids running around well (laughs) and it's good for all female writers because I can't tell you how many women say to me if I have a child is my career over or can I still get a writing career after having a child yes and the the, my answer is please 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 if you want to have a child have a child have a child it changes everything it changes the way you think it changes and if you don't want to have a child God bless you. Don't have a child. But if you want to and you're putting it off because you think you have to if you want to be a writer, 
I, I really urge you not to do that because everything in your body and everything in your mind and everything that matters to you changes and is informed. Your writing deepens. Everything deepens from that experience. And um, and I, you know, I just w- – I was like, what? I, I, you know, I was 35 when I had Coco and I was sort of like, what the hell did I wait for? Like this is crazy good. It's so that's, good. No, that's good. And now looking at now that you have a child – and looking at your own childhood, do you do you grab from your childhood a lot of your writing? And and was there any triggering event in your childhood that kind of informed you, turned your world upside down, made you want to write as a form of expression? Um, I had a pretty um, I think the polite word is dysfunctional childhood. And I think that that definitely, I know that that informs all of my writing. Um, my answer to to was there an event that turned your world upside down is this. We moved when I was eight from Venice Beach, California, where we were like hippie kids, barefoot on the beach. And there was like a free box on, on the block. I lived on Dudley. And, uh, by, and there was like a free box that all the families would put in clothes into. And you could take out of the box like new clothes as you outgrew. Like that's how we lived. And it was, a, you know, it, that was a pretty happy life. Like things were really chaotic in my home. But outside and at school and with my friends, uh, there, was, uh, there was the beach and the ocean. And there was uh, – I would fit in. And then we moved when I was eight to um, Utah. And I was ostracized because I was the only non-Mormon in the school. And I was this hippie kid who didn't like to wear shoes or brush my hair. And it was a very, very different culture. And my mom was doing community theater. Uh, and my sister was an actress in L.A. when as a child actress. And they both started doing plays at the Egyptian Theater in Park City. And I, while I was very shy as a little kid, I, I was not cast. Often I was cast in one play in the four years we were there. I went to every rehearsal of every play my sister or my mother did. And I worked at every performance. I worked at the concession stand. I worked backstage. I was from the age of eight till the age of 11. That place, that theater community, was the only place where I felt safe and welcomed. And that created my life as an actor initially because I followed in the footsteps of my mom and my sister. And then when I found that I that really I was a writer in when I found myself, I was a writer. But it was that art art community making me feel safe uh, that that made me know that I wanted to be an artist for my life. That is that's great. Now, as far as advice for young writers, if you were to give any piece of advice to someone starting writing right now, what would it be in this current climate? The one piece of advice, and you guys are going to hate me for it because it's, it's probably what everybody answers to this question, but the one piece of advice is to write. My, advi- my advice is to write and, and to write a lot and to write different things. The mistake that a lot, a lot of young writers make, and you know this, Jen, is they write one script. And believe me, it is a huge, huge victory to fill up 60 or 110 pages, depending on what genre you're writing. Uh, or, you know, are you writing a movie or are you writing TV? It's 60 or 110 pages, basically. The, the, the moving from blank pages to pages filled with black ink is a tremendous victory. And we all feel when we write our first script like it's the 
like, well, either we feel like we're the worst thing in the world and we're all insecure, or we think secretly that it's the best thing anyone in Hollywood has ever seen, and we get Oscars in our eyes and dollar signs, and we really, really want to show that script script around. We've written one script, and we're like, oh, it's gonna sell. I did it. I did it. We all, almost every writer I know did that. And the thing is, um, and by the way. I had written a lot of scripts before I moved to Hollywood, but when I wrote at that in that screenwriting class at the New School in New York, I wrote a pilot script that I then tried to like mail to everybody in Hollywood. So I that when I say I did it, that's what I mean. But my advice to you is this: like anything else, like when my daughter learned to walk, she was nine months old, and we were in this hotel. We were in Germany for Christmas. Don't ask me why. And it's five in the morning because we're all jet laggy, and she's on this weird sleep schedule. And we're down in the lobby, and she kind of pulls herself up on the little Christmas tree, and she takes a couple of steps. And they are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I burst into tears, and she's so delighted, and it's incredible. And it is like the victory of filling up sixty pages. But that's great. a week or two later, she's running, right? Now she can run, and that's better walking, right? She can walk fast, and she's not wobbling. She's not falling every three feet. So even though those first few steps are beautiful, they are not the best that you're going to do. Your next script is going to be better than your first script, and the script after that is going to be better than that. And so what I would say to you is even if you think that your script is a masterpiece, maybe it is. Write another one and write another one after that. And when you have at least three finished scripts, then you can start showing them around and then you need to start and then you need to take the advice that you're given. And one of the first things I said is if you hear hear a thing once, you can ignore it. But if you hear it three times, you have to take it. You have to take the advice. I think that William Goldman says that. It, and it's it's really super true. So write some scripts, rewrite them to the best of your ability. When you have a bunch of them, start to show them around to people you love and respect. Maybe call Jen Grisanti and hire her to read your script and uh, take her advice because she's smart. And Thank uh, you. Thank you, <laughs> She hired me. Come on. <laughs> yes. Uh, she was one of the people who started my career. And, um, and so – uh, take the notes that you're given and and write from a place of truth and keep writing. And if you've got your masterpiece that you truly know is a masterpiece and it's moving around Hollywood and you're feeling powerless, the only thing you have power over is your ability to create more material. Sit down and write. Do not sit by the phone waiting for it to ring. Sit down and write something else, something better or something. Maybe it, it's not better, but it's something else. Um, and And... And when you write really well, I don't care what color you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't I don't care if you have six kids. I don't care. It's like that Susan Boyle, right? Right? I want to be a, a famous singer. And she gets up and she sings and she's a famous singer. Don't talk to me about looksism. Don't talk to me about ageism. Be the best at what you do. And 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 there's, there's a, a place for you in Hollywood. That is fantastic. Thank you so much, Krista. That You're was welcome. incredible. Thank you, Jen. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. StoryWise is produced by Joel Metzger and Hot House Bruiser Productions. 